Hey, Michael, this is Shane Hawk, author of Anoka and co-editor of Never Whistle at Night. I've got a movie I think you'll love, or at least I do. It's a film from 2022 called The Menu, and it's fantastic. Check it out. Shane Hawk, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. We're glad to have you. I appreciate it. <laughs> uh, you and I met last summer mm-hmm. in Montana. Where were we at? We were at the inaugural James Welch Lit Festival, Native Lit Festival, um, put on by Sterling uh, Holy White Mountain, and it was fun. <laughs> <laughs> it was fun. Yeah. Uh, what were your expectations going into it? I'm curious. Mm, I don't know. Uh, I remember looking at the the website that he created and seeing all of the writers that would be there, and you know. A hand, more than a handful, were going to be in uh, Never Whistle at Night, and so it was like interfacing with uh, people that I had only talked to uh, via email, and it just was super exciting, you know, meeting, you know, Brandon Hobson, Tommy Orange, you know, Kelly Joe Ford, um, all these people, um, and it was really exciting. And I met you there. <laughs> That's yeah, that was that was a highlight. Uh, I'm sure it was a highlight for you. Yes, uh, definitely. But- <laughs> <laughs> no, of course not. But it was that's I had the similar reaction of a lot of people that I had either emailed or followed on Instagram or read their work and finally got mm-hmm. to meet them in person was kind of was kind of very fun and cool. And I, I love uh, the feeling of community with it. And I also love that Sterling put on the website, you know, the next yeah. one will be in two years because we like each other, but we don't like each other that much or we don't like to hang out <laughs> I love all that, the yeah. time. <laughs> I that was I thought that was pretty great. Yeah, it's exciting. Uh, he he invited me back for the next you know two years when it happens again to actually be a part of it. I guess on cool. stage for something. Are they going to we'll be see. poetry? Is that that was the what they were saying? Is that going to happen? Um, I don't remember. You may not it's, be able to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you wanted to do something about horror, so should be fun. <laughs> very very cool. We'll look forward yeah. to that. I had a a great time. Wonderful. It was beautiful being out there. Plus, just all the community and Definitely. the writers. Uh, yeah, no was, doubt. Let's talk a little bit about your writing journey. When did okay. the idea that you could be an author kind of enter your head? And then when did you start to kind of act on it? Hmm. Well, for a lot of people, they can claim their childhood, but that's not me. Um, I was barely a reader. Uh, definitely like pictures and movies a lot more. Um, I don't know. The idea of being a writer always felt like it's for smart people and that wasn't me. (laughs) And so I wasn't even really a reader until 2016, which I guess is kind of shocking for people. So that's when I was 26. Um, I don't know. I just kind of went through this crazy phase in my life where um, I changed my entire life with dieting, with exercise. You know, I lost like over a hundred pounds. I, started reading for the first time, uh, read 50 books that year from zero for, you know, decades. Well, decade and a half. Um, and from there, I just, I don't know, it kind of grew in me just reading. At first it was nonfiction because I was getting um, my degree in history. Um, before that, you know, I didn't, I tried college, but I kept flunking out. I kept getting kicked out of one college and going to another, getting kicked out of that one. And so that wasn't really working out for me. So eventually I, I went back in 2015, erased my bad grades, 
Um, in 2016, I don't know, something came over me. I had to change stuff, how to change my life, how to go get a degree, you know, get a career. So I settled with um, history teaching, which I'm in my first year right now. And oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, so yeah, 2016, 50 books. The next year, I think it was 250. Um, it just kind of exploded. Did um, you say my, 250? Yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> my, amazing. I know. Yeah. My curiosity just exploded. Um, that's when I went from, you know, nonfiction to, you know, the genres. So I started exploring um, science fiction, started playing catch up with um, everything that I missed out on for years. You know, I still have a lot of classics to read. Um, then I started getting into horror, mostly because of my wife. And which is <laughs> yeah, an odd making thing. Any joke right there. But <laughs> I'll let you go ahead and explain that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. Like I always I grew up with horror movies. Um, but you know, reading horror, horror fiction, I wasn't that kid that had Stephen King. I can't brag about that. Um, my first Stephen King was at the age of what? 27, uh, pet cemetery. Um, and yeah, she, she, uh, gave me a Brian Evanson, um, book to read, a short story collection. And the way that he punched me in the face with his words um, really astounded me. And I was like, wow, he's, you know, delving into horror and crime and science fiction, and he's going all over the place and they're short stories. So, you know, you don't have to invest, you know, 300 pages into one narrative. And so it was really exciting for me. And then she handed me Michael Weehunt, um, and which is kind of crazy because he's represented by um, the same agency that I'm represented by. And we, you know, talk sometimes, which is kind of cool. That's very and, cool. I'm not familiar with that. <laughs> yeah, he's really good. Um, he has a new collection coming out. And so actually both of those guys, um, I just reached out to Brian Evanson for a blurb for the anthology Never Whistle at Night. And he said, yeah, let's do it. And he was flattered that... Um, you know, he's one of the main reasons I got into horror and uh, Michael Weehunt as well. So from there, I just kept, you know, consuming horror slowly um, in between writing, you know, 30 page research papers. And um, I think it was um, Stephen Graham Jones's Mongrels where I was blown away because that's also somewhat short stories um, where he kind of. And he had an original short story in, I think, um, after the, after all the people lights have gone off, if you've read that collection yet, um, it's hard to find now, but he expanded one of the short stories in there into a whole novel. And the way that novel is cut up is kind of like short stories all interwoven, um, somewhat like, um, Tommy Orange's They're There. And I was like, damn, this is cool. I love werewolves always have for whatever reason. Um, at that point I wasn't thinking like, you know, I could be a writer. Um, you know, it's still for smart people. <laughs> I, I don't want to interrupt, but I, I am going to interrupt constantly cause I, I will <laughs> no follow up questions. And so you may not be comfortable talking about this, but I'm curious if when you had that kind of, I'm going to say a rock bottom kind of moment, but that may not be true. Mm -hmm. Was the, like the physical transformation and the intellectual transformation, was that something that was tied together was you, were you I think like, so. I am going to be a whole new Shane Hawk? Yeah, I think so. Um, 
Yeah, I was, you know, past 300 pounds. Um, I went down. I started doing the traditional route of, you know, um, cardio, lifting weights, eating like chicken and rice, I think. And then I went keto and keto brought me down 115 pounds. Um, and with that, you know, you have a lot of energy, you know, once you lose a lot of weight, um, especially on keto, your brain starts using um, adrenaline to run. So your brain is just like super fast compared to when you're kind of sluggish, you have brain fog when you have, you know, too much carbs, too many carbs. And I think that really helped my focus um, because with books before I always, I equated reading with sleeping, you know, open up a book, start dozing off. Um, but with a brain firing on adrenaline, you know, I can, I can follow a narrative. I can jump into these stories. And so when I say 250 books, it was really like, um, go to the gym, listen to an audiobook, my commutes audiobook at night when the lights are off, a Kindle with dark mode, um, sitting in a chair during the daylight, a physical book. So it was always like at least three books at a time. Um, wherever I was, you know, I watched a lot less television, a lot fewer movies. Um, and yeah, it was definitely tied, you know, um, improving my, my physical and mental health, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's really very cool. Uh, and going back to mongrels, uh, I understand exactly what you're talking about with the kind of short story based. Mm-hmm. I absolutely loved that narrative device that he uses at the beginning of not every chapter, but most of them regarding the boy and mm-hmm. whatever identity or whatever place they are and how he framed that. I will, I can't quote it by any means, but uh, yeah. it's, I'm embarrassed to say that it took me like six chapters to realize, oh, that's what he's doing. That's really cool. <laughs> but it is really cool. Yeah, he's a literary genius. And, uh, he's such crazy. a badass. I know. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm way behind. I've only read a few of his and he, I didn't. And he's one yeah. of those guys that I hadn't heard of until a few years ago. And then I realized, oh, people in the know know. Yeah. He's been doing this for, you know, decades. Right, right. Um, I own a lot of his books. And, I, you know, I'll admit I haven't read all of them yet. Um, but I've read quite a handful, you know. Um, but fast forwarding past all of that, and, you know, Mongrels didn't really make me push, didn't push me to become a writer because it still felt like this faraway thing. Um. It wasn't until the summer of 2019, so about three years into you know reading books like a normal person, or maybe like a crazy person, because it was like 250, and then it kept averaging like 225 a year. <laughs> yeah. um, which cool. now it's been it, now it has tanked as a high school teacher. Um, I read the <laughs> so far this year it's April. I've read maybe a book and a half. That's been really <laughs> yeah. rough. That was a completely different pace that I do want to talk about <laughs> later about balancing this new job and yeah. your editing work and also, you know, your writing work. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, 2019 is when I read mapping the interior, um, which if the audience doesn't know, it's a very small, um, novella. Um, and that was intriguing to me because it felt like he wrote that book for me and I can't really explain it in a, I don't know, in a smart way. But, you know, I have a brother that has special needs um, and that narrative that where it's an unreliable narrator and he pulled that whole, you know, thing off within such a short amount of time of um, page space. It really impressed me. And I was just like, man, natives are doing really cool things on the page. 
And I'm not saying that that second book um, pushed me to become a writer in a way that, hey, I think I can do what SGJ does. Not at all. But with how uh, brief the actual physical book was, I was like, maybe I can pull off something, you know. So um, that's what really pushed me to become a writer was mapping the interior. I was thinking, you know, you know, I'm native. Um, I like horror. I like creepy stuff. Um, why don't I give a stab at it? <laughs> and so I had a whole plan to write a short story collection where I was kind of mixing um, influence from Stephen Graham Jones um, and those Brian Evanson short stories. And then um, a little bit of Philip K. Dick, uh, which is he kind of sparked my love for science fiction because he's he's always um, in a lot of his books. He's always kind of making the characters go through. Is this reality? Is this not? And it's this weird kind of in between that I think um, a lot of people experience. And then I entered the teaching credential program and you have no time once you're in that. So the book got shelved. Um, Anoka wasn't even a thought yet. Um, just some or some type of short story collection. And so I got shelved. I had no time whatsoever. You know, fast forward to what was it? March 13th, 2020. Um, I was a student teacher. COVID hit. The lockdowns hit um, or shutdowns, I guess. And then, you know, all the free time in the world. You know, I was playing Xbox. I was, you know, exercising again. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then it kind of hit me um, after a couple months, after I finished out that last kind of digital, awkward, you know, Zoom only teaching um, that summer. Um, I was like, okay, this is my pandemic project. <laughs> and so I decided to write, you know, the short stories of Anoka. And yeah, that's when it really kind of kicked off. And I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I did have experience of reading, you know, but not 10 years of reading, you know, not. Um, actually, you know, analyzing anything deeply, never taking a, a workshop. And so the stories in Anoka are pretty amateurish. Um, I can say that now, almost three years later. I do have a fondness for, you know, where I was back then. Um, and the book was actually going to be double as long, but I had a hard drive crash and I lost like 25,000 words, um, which is fine. It's whatever. It's in the past. Um, but yeah, that was a moment that I almost, um, didn't publish. And I think if I hit that new rock bottom, I got really depressed after that actually. And I almost didn't, um, release it. And then some voice in me was like, no, you can do it. Write a couple more and submit it and see what happens. And so that whole journey was, you know, ups and downs, um, and it was just a simple little book. You know, I still say that I only thought 12 people would read it. You know, I think I had 12 pre-orders because I shared it with an online horror community. And I was like, oh, they're going to rip it to shreds. They're going to hate it. And then, you know, I had a, a blurb from my grandma. Um, you know, I thought no one was going to read it. It was even a chore to have some of my family read it, you know, because they don't read. I, I wrote the collection for people that don't read, to be honest, because I didn't I read. I love that. <laughs> And I read somewhere or saw in an interview that you had started, it starts with a piece of flash fiction mm -hmm. because you On wanted purpose. to ease people into it that may yeah. not be regular readers and they could start slow. Yeah, exactly. Cause I was, you know, thinking of being a, a teacher Well, trained to be a teacher already, but you know, a lot of kids don't like to read either because they go into a narrative 
they're like, oh my God, it's 400 pages. I don't want to, I can't like, you know, it's not a TikTok video. Um, and that's, that's not talking crap about Gen Z. Adults are like that now too. Completely. And, <laughs> and so, yeah, that's why the first story, Soil Born, is like two pages. Um, a lot of people complain about that, but hey, I did it on purpose. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if they're complaining about it, you didn't do it for them. <laughs> right. And so, I don't know, it's just been a while since then. Um, like, I didn't think anyone was going to read it. Uh, I got an agent out of it somehow. Um, and now, Let's... as a teacher, I have you know students reading it because I keep it in my classroom. And they borrow it and tell me what they like about it. I've spoken to different college campuses now who have the book in their curriculum, which is like insane to me. I just finished talking to a Canadian high school where the English teacher literally taught the whole book to her English, you know, 11th graders. <laughs> and I got to talk, you know, interface with, you know, 11th graders up in Canada. It was really neat. But that's awesome. I want to go back to you said somehow you got an agent. I'm sure there's somebody listening to this who wants an agent. Uh, yeah. could you, could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, I wish, uh, I had the formula to do it. Um, I'll, I'll be honest. I think it was largely luck. Um, I got the agent mostly because I was pursuing this project of Never Whistle at Night, and I was reaching out to you know bigger name authors who are already established, and I reached out to Cherie Demoline's um, agent, Rachel Litovsky of Cook McDermott, and I said, "Hey, this is the idea. We want half the book to be open call, you know, new writers, kind of like myself. We want the other half to be established names to help." sell the book, but then also to attract readers. And then therefore, you know, they read your stories and they'll read the the newer people and it, maybe it can spark some careers. And um, she got back to me and she said, Sheree is really down for this. She's excited for it. And also, do you have representation? And still at this point, you know, I'm an adult, but I also don't know. <laughs> I don't know the inner workings of anything. I don't understand the industry. So I'm thinking representation. Does she mean just for the book, like the <laughs> book to be, the book to be sold in stores? Like, what does she mean? Right. And so we had a phone call, and she meant be my agent, not just for the project, but for my future work, um, which is still insane to me. And so, by extension, I, I still think that it was mostly luck because I sent that email. Um, I I will say um, for those. Um, writers that want to get an agent or want to start writing or anything like that, um, you just have to do it. And so I've said on other interviews, other podcasts, um, that I caught COVID in December 2020. Um, I was on oxygen machines. Um, I thought I was going to lose my mom. Um, she got it first. She was hospitalized for eight days. I got it really badly. I had to have oxygen machines at home for two weeks. And it was the closest I felt to death. And before that, um, before all that COVID stuff, I was always really introverted. I was never outgoing. I was never the guy to raise my hand or shout out something or kind of go for it. Um, since then, I've adopted this kind of uh, fuck it attitude, um, which has really helped me um, both get the job that I have now, um, the projects that I'm kind of lining up for myself right now. Um, if I didn't just reach out to these people like Tommy Orange, like Shri Demoline, 
um, you know, Rebecca Roanhorse, if I didn't reach out to them, um, nothing would have happened. You know, this project was going to be a Kickstarter, you know, or self-published because I had experience with that with Anoka. And, you know, from there it skyrocketed because of this agent and we got to write a proposal with the help of, uh, you know, the Vandermeers, if you know any of the weird fiction writers. And it's just crazy. And now, you know, it's going to release this year. So it's been in the making, you know, since early 2021, you know, when we sold it. Um, it's just insane to be, to be honest. That's amazing. It's it, what a, what a crazy journey in such a short time and how cool yeah. uh, for anybody else out there listening who is thinking about doing something and is nervous about taking that step. Yeah. Just you send know, that email, send that email, ask that question, reach out. Um, writers are not celebrities. Um, you know, they're busy people. Uh, they're lonely people. They would love seeing your email and reading it if they have the time um, and just reach out, you know, whatever you want to do. Um, take that step. I love that. That's very inspirational. <laughs> I want to talk about Anoka a little bit uh, more. Where is Anoka? Uh, it's in Minnesota. It's near the Twin Cities. So near uh, St. Paul and Minneapolis. And would you talk about why you set your stories there? Yeah. Um, basically, I like the idea of a lot of weird shit happening in one kind of central location. Um, I mean, the short story collection could have been all random, you know, in space and underground, who knows. Um, but I wanted it to be kind of a small town um, vibe. And I was doing research on actual creepy places around the U S you know, I wanted it, you know, somewhere in turtle Island and, I, I happened upon Anoka. I happened upon, um, you know, haunted grave sites. Um, there was um, like a mental institution that was supposedly haunted, um, all these sort of things. And so I kind of fell in love with the name. Then I did research on the name, how it came from uh, Dakota. And I just kind of fell in love with it. And even though it's the fictional Anoka, you know, I still haven't been there. I'll be honest. And so I haven't been there, but from what I hear, what I research, it's definitely different from the fictional version that I created. <laughs> um, As it should be. Yeah. I think the the actual one is very gentrified now um, and very um, not spooky, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I gotcha. So don't go the seeking uh, on a horror, horror tourism kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. That. I mean, it is true. They have this, a store called Anoka Halloween, um, that opens, you know, for Halloween season and they still have that parade every year. They did have to halt it for COVID. Um, it is kind of funny. I reached out to them. Hey, I wrote a book and it's called Anoka and they have the stories based there. And the manager of that store said, nah, I'm not interested, <laughs> <laughs> but I will say I am in the, Anoka. <laughs> I know, right. I am in the Anoka library though. And I think a, a bookstore there. Yeah. Outstanding. Um, I think you need to be uh grand marshal of the parade one year. Yeah. And I, I learned after, um, because I'm not in direct contact with my mom or, or dad, like every single, you know, moment of what I'm doing. Um, but I learned after I finished the stories and I gave my mom a copy of, I think just the, um, the Microsoft word document. Um, she's like, did you know that I actually was in the parade a couple years? We lived in Anoka. 
And I was like, what the hell? <laughs> this is crazy. <laughs> um, because my, the maternal side of my family is, you know, after they immigrated um, from Italy, they settled in um, Hibbing, Minnesota, which is, you know, quite a bit north from uh, Minneapolis, but still Minnesota. And so one little piece of me wanting to do, you know, Anoka was, hey, you know, part of my family is from Minnesota, from the state. So it'd be cool to kind of incorporate that somehow. And uh, lo and behold, my mom was like, yeah, I was in the parade. We lived there. <laughs> and then while I was editing and finishing up the book for the pre-order um, on Amazon, my family actually went there to visit and they got pictures of, you know, Anoka Halloween, of all the, the murals they have there, um, which was kind of cool. <laughs> That's very, very cool. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious. There are, what are I think there are six stories in the anthology. Is there mm-hmm. one that people tend to ask you about more? Is there one that seems to resonate with, I'm curious, especially with the high school students you were talking to in Canada? Yeah, yeah. Um, I would say um, Orange. The third story, I believe. Um, the second, well, one of two um, flash pieces. Um, yeah, that Canadian high school, they really went deep on that story and like analyzed it. They made, um, they made a lot of cool things that the teacher sent me. Like they did, um, a continuation short story. They made like a a movie script out of it. They did all these kind of cool projects. And, um, I would say orange, I don't know, like different audiences, um, they'll kind of have a favorite. But I would say um, imitate and orange and transfigured. I mean, like, it it all depends, really. Yeah, it depends on the person. (laughs) Yeah. What a cool teacher they have. Uh, Yeah, definitely. She did that. That's that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, So we've talked about Never Will Slow at Night a little bit, but can you tell us when it's coming out and what to expect and all that kind of good stuff? And who else is in it? Yeah, yeah. Um, It's coming out September 19th, 2023. That is the tentative uh, release date. We still don't have a cover yet, um, but we're trying to finish up one and have, you know, have it jumping around on Instagram and with a pretty cover and having reviewers look at it. Um, It's basically this idea that, you know, we want to have all these native writers in it, you know, everyone's native and about half of it is uh, all from an open call we did in uh, 2021. We did a big old open call and we tried to get writers that hadn't really been published. They, I think the rule that we had was they couldn't have published more than two books. Um, and that included short fiction. And, you know, the other half is the more established names, you know, so like the ones I mentioned, like Brandon Hobson, Kelly Joe Ford, Rebecca Roanhorse, um, Darcy Little Badger. You know, there's a whole list, you know, Mona, Susan Power. Um, we're super excited. We haven't done a public um, uh, table of contents yet. We wanted to release that alongside the cover reveal and have you know everyone see all the names. Um, but if you do go to neverwhistleatnight.com, which is a URL that I bought for five years, <laughs> it, it sends you to the pre-order page. And the galley copy right now has um, at least one open call right around there, and it's Morgan Talty. So he's in it. Um, That's, he was an open call writer. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Yeah. 
And then he had, you know, Night of the Living Res out, which is awesome. And the reviews for Night of Living Res, I loved it, but yeah, there's almost no way it could live up to the reviews. And then it did. They were basically yeah. saying, you know. Yeah, he's a fantastic writer. Um, another, you know, I won't say the name yet, but another open call writer who's in it. Great story. Um, just got a major publishing deal. Very exciting. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so it's really cool, even though, you know, it wasn't uh, Never Was That Night that launched these careers. Hopefully, you know, if we get a volume two, volume three, it'll just keep lifting everyone up and having, you know, book deals left and right, you know, whatever it may be. Amazing or other projects. Tides. I love yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, will you talk a little bit about uh, your uh, indigenous background and what tribe you are and what uh, kind of relationship you have and if there's a community in San Diego or not? Yeah, yeah. I will say there's a definite um, lack of community for Cheyenne Arapaho. Um, so I am enrolled uh, Cheyenne Arapaho tribes of Oklahoma um, through my paternal side, my dad. Um, we're also of Hadatsa descent and Potawatomi. Um, I would say uh, the Hadatsa is definitely stronger. Um, the Potawatomi descent's a little more distant. Um, but yeah, just growing up with my dad. Um, you know, he raised me with certain stories, um, certain upbringing. He's the one that actually got me into horror. That definitely wasn't my mom. Actually, there's a number of times where, you know, she'd come home and <laughs> we'd, be, we'd have a VHS tape that didn't belong in the VCR for, you know, nine-year-olds, 10-year-olds, <laughs> um, you know, like, uh, Freddie and Jason and all that. Um, but yeah, um, I don't know. I, there's a lot of uh, stuff going on in my family. Um, I will say I dedicate Never Whistle at Night to my late aunt, who I just lost um, this past fall. Um, and she left behind my, uh, my two cousins and my grandma. And, you know, I wish we were closer. Um, they live out in Arizona now. Um, but yeah, I've, I don't know. It's been a, it's been a wild life for them. And, um, I love when I get to visit, you know, my aunts and, um, my grandma and my cousins. Um, but I will say in San Diego locally, there's not a lot of CNA. Um, and I know the the closest one I am to in the state really is, uh, Tommy Orange, <laughs> who I asked to be in <laughs> Nevertheless at night, um, in kind of a funny way, um, I offered him a copy of Anoka for his birthday because um, I saw on Twitter. This is back in the early days when Twitter wasn't a, a shit show. Um, but I, I sent him a copy to his P.O. box and I said he actually wanted. It's kind of funny. He wanted to, you know, review it and he wanted to um, give me a blurb for it. And I, I was like not expecting that. And so one of his I mean, uh, one of my blurbs is him on there. And then he also wanted to do the audiobook, but I was like, bro, there's already an audiobook out. I mean, I would love that. Um, so that was a funny offer from him. That's awesome. He's gonna narrate <laughs> the audiobook. That's what he said. He's like, So yeah, I just uh I got some dope equipment. Um I upgraded my little studio here and I can do some, you know, professional audio. And I was like, oh, I mean, that would be amazing. <laughs> that would have been but incredible. I, <laughs> but I just paid for you know, uh, this other guy to do it. Um, right. That would have been awesome, though. And then from there, I kind of slipped it in. Hey, this project. 
but anyway, um, it's been really cool, um, to have, uh, you know, his connection with Tommy and I got to meet him at the, the lit fest up in Missoula. Um, I will share a quick story. Um, when I was, um, on the virtual, um, a virtual talk and reading for Sheree's uh, book, Hunting by Stars. Uh, Tommy was moderating. And in the chat, um, I said, hey, what's up or something like that. And Tommy was like, oh, hey, Shane's here. He's Shane Hawk. He's he's like my tribal brother. We're both CNA. And then um, Sheree was like, oh, just when we were trying to end the stereotype that we're all related. And then um, <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty funny. And then in the chat, um, I know Tommy mentioned something about my dad and his dad and cause we were talking about it. Maybe they knew each other. And so I typed in the chat, Hey, I asked my dad the other day um, if he knew any oranges back in Oklahoma. Um, and then I, I wrote in the chat, my dad uh, thinks it was Victor. Do you know a Victor? And then like live while Cherie's trying to do her thing, Tommy like squints at the screen and he's like, Victor is my dad. <laughs> in the middle of the moderating yeah just hilarious um so that was a really neat moment um even though you know it was virtual but uh still really cool <laughs> yeah Tommy yeah. is but, very talented very generous yeah but i will admit that you know i wish there was more community here um that's you know part of my struggle with um, native identity is because i'm white passing um i don't have much community here outside of my you know smaller family um, you know, I do go to the powwows um, and love to connect with people, especially now that I'm more public facing. Um, people know my name, the projects. I get to connect with people. Um, like just recently, at Pachanga uh, over here in Temecula, we had a powwow and um, I got to meet these cool um, uh, artists that were into really, uh, really into comic books. And like they knew of a project I was in called A Howl. And we started talking about that. And it's really cool. Um, you know, connecting with people. I love it. I wish I could do it more. Um, just teaching kind of takes a lot out of me and I'm always busy. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about that. How has your first yeah. year been? Rough. And so I have nothing really to compare it to as it's my first salaried position. Um, because before this, so I got my credential um, during COVID. So what was it? May 2020 that year ended and I had my credential. And so I became a substitute. Um, they called them site subs. So it's like back in the day, if you wanted to be a sub, they would have to call you and say, hey, here's an assignment for this school. Do you want to accept? Press one or press two. I didn't have to do any of that. And subs these days don't really. Um, what they do now, because there's such a shortage, is that, hey, you want to be a sub here? You're going to sign up for this school only. Let's do it. And so you would come every day, even if there's not really a sub need, you know, so it was kind of interesting, like you'd go into the the classrooms and, you know, substitute um, a lot of times it's like, hey, open your computer, go to the website, do your stuff. I'm going to sit here, walk around, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I did that for what, a couple years. And then now I'm a teacher. So I can't really compare how the kids were before. Um but from all my colleagues that are veteran teachers, they say it's definitely different. It's definitely rougher. Um, it is kind of interesting. I think through COVID, um, a lot of um, parents uh, made teachers the enemy. Um, and we're seeing it more and more now. Um, mm -hmm. Like they're even equating now teachers with pedophiles 
because of the the left wing agenda and you know gay books and all this stuff. And so we're we're hit with that stuff every day now. Even in California, you know, progressive state, um, it's constant. Um, and I don't know, being a being a teacher is a little rough, but it does have its rewarding you know moments. Um, I've been really touched by my my students with the things that they do. Like, you know, writing me little notes when I'm having a, a tough day. They'll just not even come up to me. They'll just, you know, um, hide it and then I get to find it. Or they write me full out cards, give me gifts that I don't ask for. Just awesome stuff. Um, you know, it weighs on you. It's a lot of stuff. Um, school shootings um, are more common than ever. And it's sad to see, just talk to my kids and it's almost like a given like we just had a meeting the other day where the it was a, a group of us teachers after school and a handful of students and we we're reviewing like our mission statement. Hey kids, you know, is this accurate? Do you feel safe here at this school? You know, are we giving you all these opportunities? And it was pretty negative, um, which I get, you know, we want them to be honest. And then we got to the point about safety and it was strange, not strange, I guess. Um, definitely believable, but one kid just kind of interjected and said, I wouldn't be surprised if this school got shot up. And so this is kind of like the new normal that we're in where it's like teachers are equal to students because of the disparaging by parents and, you know, everyone online saying, you know, teachers are useless. They have an agenda, all this kind of stuff. They can learn online, you know, kids should be homeschooled. Which is cool, you know, like, hey, homeschool your kids. I'm fine with that, you know. I like um, parent choice and all that. Um, but it is kind of rough. <laughs> yeah, you've and, picked a, definitely a, a volatile and kind of interesting time <laughs> to, to start off your teaching career. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely definitely a roller coaster, definitely wild. Um, you know, I'm not saying I it hasn't really gotten to me yet where, you know, it's only been almost a year, a school year. And I'm not the jaded type. That's like dreading going to work. I've had dreadful days um, or dreadful moments, um, but I'm not like, Oh my God, I hate this. I want to quit. Um, which is awesome. Um, that, is, that is awesome. <laughs> we'll take the little, little victories. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, you know, I'll hear colleagues and I'm like, dang, I can't relate. You know, you know, I could see it, I can understand, you know, a lot of kids, it's like, uh, it's weird. You know, I'll just say, you know, they'll, they'll go up to you and say, fuck you in your face or just a, a host of things that I would never dream of doing to a teacher when I was, you know, back when right. I was in high school in 2004 to 2008. Um, I was a class clown, you know, I do stuff, but nothing to the extent of what these kids are okay with doing. It's wild. Um, you teach second grade too. So that's crazy. Uh, <laughs> if only so what grade, <laughs> tenth what grade, grade do you teach 10th graders yeah so is that united states history or what is the 10th grade uh, for us it's world history so i have three sections of uh, world history and two of ap european history so pretty much all the colonizer history <laughs> um, uh, zoom you're uh are, are students aware of indigenous history and mm, colonization no. and because of me and my interjections, um, like when we covered imperialism, I got to talk about that a bit, how it's not over, how there's different forms of it. 
Um, I get to bring my own, you know, family history into it, into, you know, I get to bring up like in November, you know, native, you know, heritage month, I got to bring up my family history with um, boarding schools, you know, my grandpa and great grandpa and how even our family doesn't know much about what they went through because they were silent afterward. Still don't know, you know, and they were changed men afterward. Um, Like my great grandpa went to Carlisle. There's a whole file on, if you Google Carlisle, you'll find a file on my grandpa, my great grandpa. Um, So it's been interesting um, bringing that kind of stuff up. Yeah, my granddad went to Hampton. Yeah. 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 It's crazy. It is. It is. And, you know, you can only, you know, share that with the kids and try to get them to understand. You know, I've shown them pictures. I've shown them you know, videos, um, you know, read excerpts, but that's like, um, that's the kind of thing I can bring to the campus, which is kind of, you know, different. I think I'm the only native on campus to the point that the principal, you know, approached me for next school year to create a native club. Cause there's a, you know, there's a native population here, not a, not huge, but you know, sizable. You know, I have personally had three Native students this school year. So, um, yeah, it's nice to be able to kind of get into that and go outside the curriculum, you know, even if it's, you know, they need to know history. Um, and I don't know, it's it's interesting what a lot of 10th graders say. Um, I remember when I was subbing, one of the things that really hurt my heart was um, – they were talking about natives for some reason and someone just kind of shouted like um, natives are just sore losers. They've always been in history. And that still, <laughs> that still sticks with me. I was, you know, subbing for a, an English class in a, a school in the same district, but down the road. And I still think about that. Um, I still think about <laughs> when I was, Younger, always going to my dad's shop. He's a mechanic. And, um, you know, because there's no babysitter, you know, going to work with him. And the boss's son um, always wanted to play Cowboys and Indians. I'll never forget it. Um, You know, asking me, you know, what I want to be. And I'd I'd say, you know, I'll try to be in the Cowboy, you know, with the cap guns we had. And he's like, no, you're going to play the Indian because the Indians always lose. God damn. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I still remember that. Um, so I like to combat, you know, a lot of the stereotypes. And, um, you know, November was fun because I got to, you know, talk about a lot of the trauma, a lot of the things, you know, that natives had to go through all over the country. Um, but then I also got to share, you know, a lot of the joy, a lot of the cool things you know, reservation dogs on Hulu and, you know, the book that we're creating, uh, the book, the books that all these other people are making, I'd share the covers and like, look at this. They're, they're incorporating beadwork into the, you know, the book cover. That's so cool. That's you know, cool. this book has ledger art, you know? Um, so yeah, it's, it's interesting as a teacher, there's good and bad. Um, I'm not jaded yet. It's my first year. Um, I'm still very positive. I have a lot of fun with the kids. Um, even the ones that give me a really tough time, the ones that make me question leaving, 
um, are still good and awesome at the end of the day. Like they'll, they're like class clowns times a thousand. And, you know, by the end I'm still, you know, as they say, dapping them up, just a handshake. (laughs) (laughs) Is that what they say? Yeah. Dap me up. Outstanding. (laughs) Uh, Just a couple more questions and then we'll get to uh, the piece of art you're introducing me to. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've already mentioned several authors uh, that are, that are great. And I'll be putting their names and links in the show notes. But is there anybody else that we should be reading that we know about either in the horror world or indigenous community or, or just someone uh, that you enjoy? Let's see. Um, I, I don't think he gets talked about enough, but you know, I'll plug my, my co-editor, my friend, Ted, um, Theodore C. Van Alst Jr. That's his, you know, full, you know, author name. That's, the name listed on his, you know, publications through University of New Mexico. Um, you know, he's pretty much best friends with SGJ. And, you know, through him, I've, you know, got this book out there. And he's one hell of a writer. Um, he has two collections, you know, through that press. Um, first, Sacred Smokes, and then Sacred City, which has been out for, I want to say, two years now or one and a half and both are amazing. Um, they're short story collections that are kind of like mosaic in a way. Um, kind of like they're there and, you know, mongrels. Um, but the way he writes, I've yet to come across another person like it. Um, he gets, you know, purpley, he gets really descriptive. He, uh, he makes up a lot of sayings and words and it's just amazing. Like he, he also recorded the audiobook for both of them and no one else could record the audiobooks. You know, once yeah. you actually, you know, the audience go out and check out the audible um, previews. I mean, it's amazing. And there's somewhat um, autobiographical as well. You know, he was Chicago raised um, and I can't recommend it enough. Like even right now I'm blurbing one of his novellas that's coming out. Um, Poor one for the devil, which is a, a Gothic. And um, my wife read it first. Cause I'm so busy, you know, I'm sorry, Ted. Um, <laughs> and my, my wife, you know, she's busy too. She's also going through this similar stuff. Um, but she's, I think almost done with it. And she just keeps looking at me. And saying, you know, Ted needs to be famous. He needs to be big. Like, his words are so important. And it's just really cool. So I I love getting to share, like, what she says about his novella with him. Um, I'm only about 20 pages in, but even I'm saying the same stuff. I'm like, oh, my God. Ted's just so good. (laughs) That's awesome. And I don't mean to just, you know, plug a friend, but it's like – you know, I don't see his name enough, like on recommended lists or, you know, word of mouth and stuff. Um, I think a lot of people really need to read him. So good. So start with sacred um, smokes first, if you want. Okay. Um, it's not that you have to read those books in order, um, but just see where he started in a way. I mean, he has plenty of short stories published as well, but I would say sacred smokes um, he's really a man of the people and I love having him as a co-editor and, you know, hopefully for volume two and three box set, <laughs> keep it going. 
I love um, but it. He's yeah, he's amazing. Um, trying to think of any others. Um, let's see. Jessica Johns. Have you read her yet? No, I haven't. No, Bad Cree. Oh, I've been seeing the book everywhere. I love it. I haven't read it. Yeah, really good. So whenever you have the time, get to it. Um, I read that via Audible. You know, when I said one and a half books, it's that book and half of Ted's. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Yeah. Outstanding. Yeah. Well, that gives us a good place <laughs> good place to start without a doubt. Yeah. But we're going to take a little bit of a break. And then when we come back, we will be talking about the menu. Cool. Hey, guys, just a brief pause to give you a chance. Uh, there are spoilers ahead for the menu, uh, the film, the very fun film, I might add, by director Mark Mylod, was written by Seth Reese or Rice and Will Tracy, starring Ralph Fiennes, Anya Taylor-Joy, and Nicholas Holt, amongst others. Uh, so spoilers ahead for the menu, as well as spoilers ahead for Nope. We don't talk about a lot, but we do a little bit there towards the end, and uh, so be careful there. So go see the menu. It's... An hour and 47 minutes worth your time and uh, enjoy our conversation when you get back. And we are back with Shane Hawk and Shane, I asked you to introduce me to an artist or a piece of work that you love. What did you choose and tell me why? All right. So I chose the recent, I would say what dark comedy horror um, mix up uh, the menu, which I don't remember who directed it. But uh, that movie, okay, gotcha. That movie is fantastic. I loved it. Um, I saw it in the theater with my wife. Um, we were cracking up. Uh, just loved it. Um, and I want to own the Blu-ray <laughs> so much. And I hadn't had the chance to rewatch it before this podcast. Um, but I still remember a lot of it vividly. Um, I what thought about it was it appealed a, to you. Think you do think generally. And we'll get more specific as we go on. Yeah, I think, I don't know. I think um, one of my favorite things uh, recently is a lot of comedians or comedic actors going into serious roles or even horror roles. Um, You know, like ever since Jordan Peele came out, you know, I grew up watching him on Mad TV and being silly. Um, And then seeing, you know, him bring out, truly horrific things, you know, meanwhile, hitting the dark humor that I love, um, that I personally have, you know, because I don't know, I think you need dark humor to survive, you know, some of the craziness of this world. And so several parts of it, you know, made me laugh out loud. Um, uh, <laughs> I think it's part, partly because I'm somewhat as obsessed with this genre of reality TV where Gordon Ramsay is just yelling at people. (laughs) Um, I can't help it. I don't know what it is about him. Um, I'm sure a lot of people don't like him, um, but I just love how serious he takes his craft. And maybe I think even they do an allusion to him in the movie where I forget uh, the actor's name who plays Voldemort, but the main, the chef in the menu. Yeah, right, right. Well, that's embarrassing. Uh, but <laughs> He's not listening. It's okay. <laughs> um, 
but he he calls someone a donkey at one point, and that's like a <laughs> famous insult of uh, Gordon Ramsay. Oh, is but, it really? Yeah, he'll just that's yell funny. at people, you know, being incompetent. You know, you donkey. You know, <laughs> I not, remember the scene where he does that. He asks the uh, the elderly yeah. couple, the uh, the regulars, yeah, know, to name name one a dish. dish. <laughs> yeah, it's like it wasn't cod; it was halibut. You donkey. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. I did not get that reference because I haven't done any mm. Ramsey yet. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, yeah, I love that it was kind of a weird, um, dark take on like, uh, I don't know, on this obsession with um, using fancy dining as like a status symbol. And I love that it's really... Um, it's really a movie about artists losing their passion for what they do. Um, when they start chasing fame, you know, prestige glory, instead of just concentrating on the art just for the fun of it. And so I see that a lot in, you know, horror where, you know, people are chasing, um, you know, just trying to write the perfect book, appeal to literary audiences um, and kind of poo-pooing, you know, um, kind of, damn, I can't think of the word. <laughs> well, like genre fiction versus? Yeah, genre and, you know, um, like schlock. That's what I was okay. going for. Schlocky um, horror. <laughs> Good um, word. <laughs> yeah, so poo-pooing that. Um and I think somewhere along the way, if you just try to veer off from your your passion too much, um, it'll really upset you and make you dejected, make you want to quit, um, and ultimately want to, you know, uh, hypothetically, you know, fictionally um, hurt your audience, your new audience. And so what this chef does in this movie is he kind of, it's kind of a, very well-crafted revenge that he takes on pretty much every archetype of his new type of customer versus when he first started in a burger joint, just flipping cooking up awesome burgers, you know, um, and just, I think every reveal in the, in the movie um, per table per, you know, guest was just perfect. Um, I love the finance bros, you know, having those tortillas with their bank statements um, and all that kind of junk. And I don't know, just every aspect of it um, really hooks me. Um, I wasn't bored for one minute of that movie. I loved all the tiny little details. I love the obsessive, you know, fanboy. Um, I can't recall his name, but the one that brought Margot. <laughs> Yeah, Tyler, um, played by Nicholas. Tyler, Holt. right, right, right. Um, I love how obsessive he was. You know, you can just imagine that type of person in real life. You know, just caring about, you know, being perfect because you watch, say, say you like watch every Gordon Ramsay video, and then you all automatically think that you're also on his level. And so, I don't know, just like every aspect of that movie, um. I just love the the darkness and then the humor. Um, it was like a perfect marriage to me. 
That's amazing. So yeah. we had talked about, I uh, was inviting you on the podcast and asking you what you were going to recommend. And mm. uh, we started with one movie that we might get to in a little bit. And uh, I had already seen that one. So since the conceit mm. is that you're introducing me to it, uh, it turns out the menu was still playing in the theater in Atlanta. Mm. So I went and oh. I think it was, I think I went on the last day that it was there and it was oh, a cool. matinee and I was completely by myself in the entire theater. And I had a ball. Mm. Like I absolutely um, loved this movie for what it was, you know, yeah. it's not Citizen Kane. No, but like it's, it was so much fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you do uh, Gordon Ramsay. I do those, those, those that show chef's table. Oh yeah. I'm not yeah. sure. You know, if you're, so, and yeah, I, which this movie, you know, homages or, or also makes fun of like mm-hmm. so many times they actually hired the, one of the directors from um, really chef's table. He was the second Newton director. So all those like glory shots, oh, okay. the food being plated and all that kind of stuff that mm-hmm. is by the same people who do chef's table. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Which I thought, and I remember when they did that dish, the sea, mm-hmm. you know, the taste of the sea, that is just like the, the Magnus Nielsen one. I could be butchering that guy's name, by the way, you mm-hmm. know, it has this you know, restaurant in Scandinavia out in the middle of nowhere that people come to, but that's one. It looks just like, okay. One of those wow. And they hired Dominique Crenn, uh, who also has an episode on that mm-hmm. show to like, to be their consultant. Um, so I was hooked from the beginning when it said, I, and again, I'm not going to get the exact wording right, but yeah. it's like, you know, blank entertainment invites you to enjoy. And like the wording down at the bottom of the screen was like <laughs> they use in chef's table. And then yeah. it started off with uh, the courses. I just mm-hmm. love that idea of using yeah. that as a narrative structural device uh, because it allowed them to comment on things and mm-hmm. but also like set you up. And you also just knew where you were in the whole thing. I, I just really had a good time with it. Yeah. I love that. Um, it didn't take itself too seriously. And in a way, I think it's also meta in a way because, you know, the whole, I would say the big picture idea of it is that, you know, just create art and people are just going to consume it and enjoy it. And that's it. Nothing further. And then here we are in a podcast kind of dissecting it, thinking about all the little details. And then we're kind of like that food critic, like mm, had a little bit of this, had a little bit of that. Uh, just kind of funny uh, meta commentary in a way, if you want to be honest about it. Yeah, completely. Um, and he's also self-indicting too. Yeah. He's not, it's not just him and these are these horrible entitled people. Mm-hmm. You know, he is fully, I mean, that's, he's fully part of the, part of the problem. Yeah, you know, exactly. He recognized that, which I think is is pretty great. Uh, of the tables that were seated there, is there one um, you either hated the most or thought <laughs> didn't really deserve to be there? And we could tell mm. we had the tech bros, you know, who right. were just great and so entitled. That guy was like, <laughs> is like, and gluten free for my boy. He's like, gluten free. Yeah, you know, like I, I loved that moment. You got the washed-up actor with John Leguizamo, and can you believe mm-hmm. that he, he's actually having his own show coming out on CNN? Really, which is hilarious because uh, in the, you know, hopefully you guys are if you're listening, you've already seen it. But mm-hmm. if you know you had it, he's like you know joking about pitching this travel show with him, and he's like, yeah, I'll go to Italy, I mm-hmm. wear pastels, I'll you know get on a Vespa, and then I'll. Is he actually going to be doing that? He's doing a show like where he tours around America. 
No way. For like a six episode show. Yeah. Wow. Life imitating art. Meta completely. <laughs> and you got Tyler, the food obsessive foodie, and mm-hmm. his his girlfriend or his date, who's not even really his date. I guess right. we don't really have to be careful for spoilers here because mm-hmm. I'll have given a spoiler warning. Right. Um, right. You have the uh, the regulars couple, and then you have the uh, the food critic and the editor of uh, Savoir, mm. uh, whatever magazine it was. Maybe Savoir. I don't know. I could be just right, right. pronouncing that too. Um, yeah, let's see. The one that probably didn't deserve it. Hmm. If there was one, I don't know. I would have a little soft spot for the elderly couple. Yeah. Because um, what their main crime was that they had dined with him but just couldn't remember the dishes because they're so full of themselves i guess i yeah. could see that in a way i guess so and that they've been there 11 times at you know 2500 bucks a dinner mm. okay um, yeah that's the way he puts it like <laughs> couldn't you know, name one thing consider themselves lucky to be here once and you've been here 11 times and you don't even remember what we've right what we've made. Yeah, I, I'm I not would, saying any of them actually deserve to die. By the no, way, no, yeah, yeah. I'm just saying by, by the rules of the movie. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I, I mean, he's kind of uh, punishing like hyper consumerism, where he's kind of take, 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 and you're so, you're so busy consuming that you don't like sit down and be like, oh, that was a nice piece of cod or whatever. You just kind of consuming it and just enjoying your you know rich night out. Um, I am kind of curious. I'm not sure if it was ever really revealed, but I kind of wonder why, um, Tyler's girlfriend that should have been there should have died with him. Did they ever reveal that? He says that she broke up with him. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But she was supposed to be there. Yeah. So I I wonder if the chef was planning on letting her go just like Margo, like Margo. Um, or, or killing her too. And I wonder what her crime was. I presume uh, it would have been, it, it might almost been just bad enough in the chef's eyes that she was dating that guy. Uh, okay. <laughs> I don't know if right. been, or if there was other incriminating <laughs> stuff. Yeah. It doesn't really talk about that. I'm curious about yeah. that too. Yeah. It certainly seemed like she was part of the plan though. You know, the, mm. the one who, the girlfriend who wasn't there. Right. Like, I don't think they were making special arrangements for her. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think the one that made maybe the most sense in his eyes was probably the food critic. Um, Cause at one point I forget the sous chef's name, but she's sitting down talking to, I think Margo and Tyler about cigarettes and saying like, you know, if you smoke cigarettes, it ruins your palate. So saying like, if you smoke cigarettes, you kind of can't taste. And yeah, that was the opening, uh, the opening of the film is uh, right. Tyler talking to Margo about that. Mm, okay, that's what it was. And then at one point in the background, um, the food critic is smoking. And so oh, that kind of... catch that. Yeah, so it kind of alludes to, you know, these food critics don't know shit, and yet they're the arbiters of, you know, very talented chefs having a career or not. Yeah. And so I think it was alluding to that she doesn't have good taste, and she doesn't know what she's talking about. And so she should be punished for all the people's um, livelihoods that she ruined. Yeah. So I, uh, I totally understood that one. 
<laughs> Com- completely. And Janet Mateer, yeah. the uh, the act, I, I think she just so embodied that character so well. Yeah, it was so realistic. She played off with Ted, the editor, you know, and just yeah. like it's just thalassic, you know, and using these you know seventy five cent <laughs> words and references yeah. and um. <laughs> I just, I don't know. I like the fact that the movie took its time at first, you know, mm-hmm. it kind of, we settled in, we got to meet everybody. It felt fairly organic. Yeah. Uh, I like the forebodingness. We're on this Island, mm-hmm. you know, you're very much like a, you know, not quite a locked room mystery, but certainly like an old Victorian haunted house kind of mystery, kind of horror right. thing. We're isolated. Right. Right. Uh, was great. And I thought the actors were, were fabulous. Yeah, the whole thing, even though, you know, it had touches of humor and it, it never kind of veered off into um, corniness. Like, yeah. it was just funny. It came it came close. Like, the characters, they're not quite caricatures because mm-hmm. I don't, I would not have enjoyed that. Um, yeah. But they're really They're on pushed, the brink. They're really pushed to the brink. Yeah. But all the actors played everything. Um with a realism and naturalism within the style of the movie, which Mm -hmm. made it, which kind of work. Uh, I had some, I have trouble believing that Tyler knew that he was going to die and that Margo was going to die. And he still showed up. Like, I Mm -hmm. wish that had been a different uh, point. You know, I wish they hadn't gone that far with that. That kind of took me out of the story a little bit. Yeah. Um, Although, you know, meeting so many weird people in my life, I could, <laughs> I could see someone going that far. Um, especially how obsessive he was, um, with the, with food in general, with the chef and the whole, you know, he took down basically the whole, um, cooking team as well. And so they were, de- they were like a devoted cult. And I just saw Tyler as wanting to be in that cult and being an outsider and being willing to prove himself. But yes, it does kind of take a little bit more suspension <laughs> of belief. Um, but yeah, I can understand that, definitely. Um, but yeah, I, I also think the the tech bros, the finance bros, definitely also deserved it. Like I was like in the theater, like, all right, it's their turn, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> well, I loved how Tyler looks down on them, like, yeah, they're going to be drunk before the amuse. Right, know, right. He just dismisses them, and they were again. <laughs> the actors were just so good, and the dialogue was so good. Uh, yeah, just the it little, was on small point. little things they'd say about, mm-hmm. you know, how's your girlfriend? You know, it was like, you know, like we're not great. It's like, is it your fault? He's like, yeah, of course it's my fault. Like, you know, my <laughs> I mean, she didn't make me text her coworker. You know, like yeah, it's my fault. It's like at least mm-hmm. we have jobs and money. Yeah, you know, it kind right, of boils right. down. Um, <laughs> At first, I thought that John Leguizamo's the movie stars, uh, Washington mm-hmm. movie star, his him and his assistant. At first, I was thinking that mm-hmm. would be my most innocent table because basically yeah. he was in a horrible movie mm-hmm. that he describes as goes, yeah, you know, it was like a bad script, you know, bad job, but really fun shoot. And as a as an actor who you know mm. will take at my career <laughs> pretty much any job that you know somebody's going to pay me to do, right? Uh, you know, I felt like he's like he goes because he said he goes like I didn't. It's not like I directed it, yeah. But it was just that's kind of where you. Um, mm. It's a good reminder that it's not really fair. This is all just in this guy who's you know not exactly mentally, yeah, hinged, and his point of view is like his face. 
It's like right. he has one day off for like, you know, in a year <laughs> and goes to see the Sunday matinee of this, you know, horrible film that sounds like Pat Adams or something like that. Uh, and that's why he deserves to die. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was a little over the top if you think about it. Um, and it kind of, co- it kind of clashes with the chef's, um, I think views in the way because he himself is uh, cognizant that, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm a kind of a slave to these new archetypes of people, of customers, and I have no passion for this anymore. Um, it's not fun for me. It's just chasing fame and money and et cetera. Whereas the actor um, was not chasing fame in a way, kind of chasing something fun and like a paycheck. So he, I guess, I don't know what he was like critiquing doing something that wasn't part of his art, part of his artistry um, in his artist palette as an actor and just going for a paycheck and kind of dismissing the fun part. I think that's part of it for him, but I also think it's just like, no, that was a horrible movie and that was my one day (laughs) off and I blame you. You you ruined my day. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yeah. It's it's a little petty there. Completely, but I loved it. And then his assistant, you know, they right. have that moment where, you know, because Leguizamo is like, you know, why, why me? Mm-hmm. He explains why me. And then she's, and she's like, how about me? And he's like, you know, mm-hmm. did you go to Brown? Like, where did you go to school? Yeah. She's like, Brown. It's like student loans. He goes, no. He goes, you die. <laughs> <laughs> so when I was watching it um, again, uh, mm-hmm. I did it with the subtitles on, which I like to do. Mm-hmm. Not the first time I see something, but you know, the, second, yeah. cause you get little tips in there and one line right. of dialogue that I missed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I could read was that, you know, she's leaving John Leguizamo to go work for Sony in development. Mm-hmm. And she says, my mom got me a job with Sony. Uh, so I think that also is just nepotism. Goes to like, yeah. It goes to the entitlement, you know, to yeah. your, the you know the kind of the wealth that is going in yeah because wasn't she like a uh born into wealth and then also stealing from the actor yeah we presume she's born into wealth we just know that her mom works for sony but in high up enough to get her hired but yeah so we but we can maybe assume that but yeah exactly she was embezzling money he knew (laughs) she's like i know you knew um that's awesome did you have a favorite course because you know part of the structure of the film is we're dividing in the courses. We're taking through a very fun, big old fancy dinner, starting with oh, the introductory, and then we got the amuse bouche, and then uh, <laughs> and I can go through them if and remind you some if you need to. Uh, uh, ones that are in memory, by food or by like the bad shit that happens. Okay, way, I'm curious. Man, I mean, just from memory, um, my favorite has to be was it Tyler's bullshit? Yes. Um, when Tyler's forced <laughs> to go behind, you know, behind the stove and actually cook something up after talking and talking and talking, you know, put his words to test and <laughs> the plating, once it hits the, the camera, it's just terrible. Like in the presentations totally <laughs> off, you know, if you're watching any of those, uh, Gordon Ramsay or other shows and the competition shows, you know, when it has that aerial shot of the food and it's like that. Ooh, right. you know they're gonna get ripped a new one. Um, oh, really? Is that yeah. the dynamic of it? Yeah, because like they they're rushing, they're last minute. You know, they have to be calm and collected and put it down. Otherwise, you know, it's too rushed and it's ugly, and you know they get scored on that. Yeah. Um, 
I would say probably that one because I, I think I laughed out loud probably more than I should have. And then <laughs> just the ending with the s'mores. Yeah. <laughs> so Tyler's bullshit was undercooked lamb, inedible shallot, leek, butter sauce, utter <laughs> lack of cohesion. Yeah, utter lack of cohesion. <laughs> I love that that line. And I thought Nicholas Holt did such a great job in that moment of of acting that kind of freaked out. Holy crap. They're mm-hmm. all standing around him. You know, you know he's got these random bits of knowledge in his head, but he can't yeah. just put it to practice like on demand, like yeah, like they do. Yeah, it's totally different. You know, once you're actually trying to do something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, what about you? You know, that's I, I'm not positive. I the whole deal, the mess. You know, when the sous chef commits suicide. Mm-hmm. Like that, I mean, you kind of know where you're going with this, with the trailer. You know, it's suspenseful. You have the whole, like, we're going to die. Yeah, we're going to die in the trailer. Mm-hmm. You know, the critic and the, the food writer. I mean, the critic and the editor. Uh, but I didn't see, like, the mess coming. Even when they started, when they laid down the plastic. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and watching it several times in this last month now, like, it seems fairly obvious. Because I don't know if you remember Lethal Weapon 2. When, like, oh, not in a while. <laughs> the, a guy walks into the office and like they're having renovations done in the office. So there's like a plastic tarp down. Mm-hmm. And of course they're just plastic tarp down so they can kill them and clean up the blood easily. Oh, right. Yeah. I you know, kind of thing. So I feel like I should have, I feel like that should have triggered, triggered something. <laughs> there Forgive you go. me. Uh, not <laughs> um, but it didn't. So I think that one really caught me. And then I love the breadless bread course. Yeah. You know, to I was me, laughing you know, out loud at that too. As a writer, like, I know that, like, when that dude thought of that, like, Will Tracy, I think it was, when he thought of that, he had mm. to be like, oh, that's awesome. Because <laughs> it, it was just so, you know, you guys are the elite, you know, bread is the mm-hmm. food of peasants. and Right, right. And then they also use that so nicely to trigger so many other things that happen. You got the tech bros being a dick, like saying, hey, you know, yeah, that's funny, that's cute, I get your concept, you know, where's my bread? Mm-hmm. You know, and they're just like, no. <laughs> No, I still need the bread. <laughs> no, um, I love that. And as someone who almost dips every single piece of food in something, I'd yeah. be like, "Oh, that's awesome!" I would just eat those dips and be, and be right. pretty darn happy. Yeah, I got to sit down and eat bread. You know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, did you see the whole thing with Margot? And that's not a real name, but I don't remember what it is. As her as a, you know, an escort, or did you see that coming in advance, or were you surprised as as I was? Yeah, I was pretty surprised. I don't, I don't remember any foreshadowing either. Um, there it's might have a little been. bit. Yeah. Huh. And again, on on rewatching, like you see, like she's uh, she has some line, and it's talking about the chef and the relationship with Tyler, and like you want the chef to like you. Mm-hmm. You know why you're paying? You're paying for a service. He doesn't have to like you. Mm-hmm. Which you see, Tyler then take that personally because he's like, Oh, you're talking about yourself. Like I'm paying mm. you for this service. You don't have to like me. Cause he has, he, cause he goes, what does that mean? Oh, that's right. And, and she's I like, think I remember that. Nothing. Yeah. But I didn't pick up then until like watching it a third time, you know, mm. that kind of thing. Um, yeah. And uh, I think her, I'm not sure how they got her character name, but um, the dress she wore, I read it somewhere that, um, it's literally called Margot Slip Dress, and it's a lingerie company. 
Oh, really? <laughs> I think they, I don't think they changed the name after the movie though. I think that was what it's called. Margot slip dress that, that like kind of sheen, um, pink thing she was wearing. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. She's a super good actress. Definitely. And, uh, one little, uh, detail that I, I wanted to add was I liked, um, when they were mentioning the goats, I noticed that they said that they, they use those goats to lead the, the livestock to the slaughterhouse. And they also use the goats to lead all the people to the restaurant. Oh, that's excellent. <laughs> to the slaughterhouse. Yeah. That's very cool. And I think one of my other favorite courses would probably be the memory course. Um, mm. Where they do the, um, you know, he's also talking to his mom. First of all, it's crazy. His mom was there. Crazy yeah. how she reacted during this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Jen yeah, I was wondering shot. about her the whole time. Right? Yeah. Who is this lady? <laughs> yeah, just in there, just pummeling the wine. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of glory shot they had of like all the little scissor shears kind of going into the chicken thighs. Yeah. You know, it was just so, it's just so well edited and well done. And yeah, it's so good. Yeah, it's just so good. <laughs> I really got to watch it again. <laughs> I mean, it really, it, honestly, it, re- it, it is multiple viewings are rewarded. Mm-hmm. You see more of these little things. Yeah, I got to do it with subtitles now. I, I, I've learned a lot because it'll also do, sometimes, don't do it ever first, ever, of course, because it's, there will be spoilers. Like you might hear a voice that is off camera mm-hmm. and on the subtitle, it'll be like Johnny's voice, uh, you know, like, so then you yeah. find out who it is maybe before you were supposed to. And right, that right. right. Happen. <laughs> um, I want to see. I love the man's folly as well. Mm, you know, what was outside. that one? So they're outside. This is where the men get to run, but it's where the chef oh. Slowick, you know, the sous chef is like, you know, yeah, he tried to fuck me. Mm. I didn't try to fuck me next week. I didn't. And then he didn't talk to me for eight months or look me in the eye. Cause he can do that. Cause he's the man. Cause he's the star, mm. you know, kind of thing. And then she stabs him with the, the chicken sear, the, the sears sears. No. Scissors? Yeah, shears? Scissors. Shears. That's the word I'm going for. <laughs> Stabs him with the shears in the thigh. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. I totally remember all that now. I thought that was that was kind of brilliant as well. <laughs> Man, just talking about all this, I really need to watch it. Maybe even there's, tonight after this. <laughs> <laughs> there's so much into it. Um, I know. We got to talk about the ending. What did you think of that and... Uh, the cheeseburger and all that kind of play out. Uh, yeah. Actually, before the cheeseburger, let's get to the uh, the, the the Coast Guard guy. Oh, yeah. That's, Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah, with the gun. Um, yeah, maybe I'm not smart enough. I didn't see any of that happening. Me neither. I fell for it. <laughs> that's an, uh, so like, this was... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to say um, it totally caught me off um, off guard there. I just totally fell for it. Uh, maybe on a rewatch, I'll see if they foreshadowed or had any hint. But I was like, "Huh, okay, here we go." Oh, wow, okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I kind of fell into their lap there. <laughs> so a lot of this was filmed in Georgia, in Savannah. You know, I don't know if you know, mm. but Atlanta is either second or third in the world in production. You know, almost every year now. Sometimes right, I think fourth, some but... tax laws or something. 
Yeah, we did. We had great tax laws and we got rid of them and then we had great tax laws again and everybody's coming back. And so I'm getting a lot better auditions than I used to. Uh, <laughs> nice. Still not booking the ones I want. But hmm. uh, anyways, that's Matthew Cornwall, who's a, a good local Atlanta actor who also mm-hmm. does like a taping service and kind of thing. So that was very cool to see him in that. Oh, I cool. He did a fabulous job. <laughs> that's I awesome. definitely didn't see that coming at all. Yeah. Um, with the cheeseburger though. Um, I look good too. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I saw, I watched, I don't know, YouTube video about the movie, maybe a couple months after I saw it. And I guess all those, so all the plates, like they never literally got to eat anything, even though it looked delicious for, I don't know what the reason was, but for Anya, um, the actress, she actually got to eat that full burger. Shexy, you know, got to consume it. And I think it was, um, I always forget his name, the actor, um, the guy that, the actor that played the actor, um, uh, John Leguizamo. Yeah. Leguizamo. Um, he was saying, you know, it was so unfair just watching her eat that delicious burger. You could smell the bacon, all this kind of stuff. Um, I really liked that ending. Um, I didn't know where the movie was going to go, but I liked that she went to, um, what was it his house? And, you know, saw all the stuff about his past and kind of got some of that exposition. Um, and then even though, you know, he's a psycho, you know, all that you can kind of connect with him on a human level. Like, hey, I lost his passion. Um, you know, you don't think of these elite chefs as wanting to even cook a burger because that feels like, you know, peasant food, just like the bread. Um but I think it was a really nice ending, especially how, um, you know, everyone was like staring at her. And then eventually she said, you know, can I take the rest to go? And it was kind of her way of escaping. Um, I think he was going to let her go, even if she didn't do that. Do you? But I think so. Um, maybe Tell it nudged why. him a little bit. But, um, well... <laughs> I don't know. I was actually afraid. I was on my seat because I thought she was going to be like, this is shit. Or she was going to say <laughs> something. Because I, I, I thought maybe she was kind of like, oh, shit, I'm going to die anyway. I'm going to, you know, this guy's a psycho. I'm going to, you know, have enjoy this burger and then insult him because he's going to kill me anyway. So right, I was thinking. Well have some joy. I that. was thinking, you know, because she's kind of like this badass woman and kind of, um, you know, speaks her mind. So I did think she was going to go that way. Um, but after she, you know, said she loved it and, you know, perfect, good. I was like, oh, he's going to let her go. She's going to be the one that gets out of here because she wasn't on the menu. She didn't deserve it. Yeah, she's an escort, but that doesn't mean she deserves anything, you know, anything negative. Well, no, her being an escort is a positive because she's in the hospitality industry because she's a giver, not a Exactly. Taker. Yeah, so she, she kind of understands, um, you know, providing services and, you know, I guess doing it for passion, huh? Um, well, they have that conversation <laughs> in the office, which I thought was right. just great because she's telling the details about how uh, Reed Bernie's, uh, you know, what he would do with her and make, you know, basically say, hey, you know, you, you be my daughter while I jerk off. Um, yeah, so weird. <laughs> and he's like, I don't know the details. He goes, uh, he, he, goes, he goes, I know what a bad customer is. Yeah. You know, I kind of loved that kind of moment <laughs> of, you know, like yeah. solidarity with. Yeah, them connecting. The givers and the uh, givers versus the takers, and of course, then he changes his mind. But then she gets him back with that. You know, I love that. Like I, 
Definitely. My eyes were a little bigger than my stomach. So it was <laughs> yeah. So... And I think that might have helped her case um, even more if he was going to kill her um, with the to-go bag because what is it like? If, I've never really eaten at a fancy place. The most expensive meal I had was um, comped by a, a family friend. It was like a tomahawk steak for like a 150 bucks and it was free for me. <laughs> um, but I assume from everything I've read and seen on, you know, on TV that these expensive places, you don't, you don't get food to go. That's like a low class thing where you gotta, you don't have enough money to buy another meal. You got to take the rest. And then I think her saying, you know, I'm not that hungry, but I would like to take it to go. Um, I think it also signaled to him that, Hey, this is so good that I want to enjoy it again. Just not here. You know? Yeah. I love that. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Yeah. Um, before I was an actor and a writer, I was, uh, I, I, you know, I had a decent job and where I was trying to convince my then girlfriend to move to New York, uh, with me. And we went to a really fancy lunch dinner and mm. we, um, you know, we like to share food and all that. Mm-hmm. And like, so I like, I picked up my plate and she picked up her plate and we were going to go trade them. Mm-hmm. And then like out of nowhere, this like swooping in waiter dude, like grabs our plates and, and does that for us. Like oh. we weren't supposed to do that, you know? Interesting. Oh yeah. It was like, <laughs> a, okay, this is a restaurant we're not used to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, you can't it share. Was really here. Cool. Yeah. You no, know, you can totally share. But like, oh, oh, you shouldn't have to pick up your own plate to share. Oh, they will do that for you. Oh, okay, gotcha. Like that's kind of the level of service that it was. Oh wow! <laughs> We're just like, yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, definitely not used to that. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Um, <laughs> When my theater company, when we were looking at plays and trying to give critiques to the playwrights, uh, we used uh, something called the Liz Lerman method. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a way to give critical feedback in a way that's kind of kind and gentle and doesn't hurt people's feelings. And mm-hmm. one of the sections of that is something called popcorn and where you would just go around the room and you would just name kind of things that you liked about what you just heard, mm-hmm. you know, rapid fire. And I want to name a few. And then if I trigger any memories of you on this that you want to name, <laughs> Uh, feel free to join in and then we'll wrap okay. up. I want to be respectful of your time. Sure. Um, one of the things I loved was a, uh, one of the wines was described at the end as a faint, having a faint sense of longing and regret, <laughs> <laughs> which I just think is a great, I do recall <laughs> that beautiful thing, the wine. <laughs> and like, you know, I feel like that, you know, might be my new Twitter bio that I have a faint sense of longing and regret. <laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> uh, in one of his speeches, Chef Slowick was, uh, he goes, this is talking about uh, going into the memory thing of the chicken thigh, the taco. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're always innovating and we fear irrelevance. And I, for some reason, that just hit me a little mm-hmm. bit. Always interfering irrelevance, talking about this, you know, hedonic treadmill that he's kind of on and just pursuing, you know, excellence and never being able to achieve it because there is no perfection and also trying to please people who will never be pleased. Like right. you talk about the, the broken emulsion and the Janet McTeer character. Mm. Um, I already talked about the dumb part, bad script, fun shoot though. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then one of the hints with um, uh, the the woman who was in charge of the front of house, I uh, forgot her name. Really good actress. Hong Chow played Elsa. Mm, they yeah, talked Elsa. about how um, like, you know, 
if you know you hurt Doug Varick, you know Doug Varick will be closed. This restaurant will be closed. And she's like, mm-hmm. she goes, oh no, that won't be necessary because she knows they're going to blow up the place. Oh, you know, I missed that. The first, like, oh no, that won't be necessary. We won't have to close because we're all going <laughs> to die and the restaurant's going to be burned down. Ooh, I didn't catch that. Yeah, I didn't either at first. Oh, another one. She had another line. She said, "Let me know if this is boring or obnoxious." Because uh, no. <laughs> I really like no, these, no, no. Little part, these little tidbits. Of this no, movie. I just wish I got to rewatch <laughs> it before this, and you know, had more details. <laughs> uh, definitely rewatch it again soon, and we'll yes, we'll just have a beer or whatever. And yeah, just text me. <laughs> um, this one, uh, I don't know where to go. Where to go? She goes. Do you know who? You know, the tech bros are going like. You know, do you know who we are? Mm-hmm. You know, like we work with Mr. Varick or Douglas Varick or whatever he said. And she goes, she goes, no, you, she goes, you work for Mr. Varick, mm. which is just such a classic thing that I see people even on my yeah. level of whatever do mm-hmm. all the time. Like, Oh yeah. Well, I work with, you know, Stephen King, like, no, you, no, for for <laughs> you know, like you don't work with Stephen King. I mean, technically right. we do, but we all know what the deal is. Oh, uh, yeah, I don't know. That's all I got. I think that's <laughs> well, I'm trying to remember of some moments to share too. Um, I guess maybe thinking of the chilling ones. Um, like, I didn't know what was going to happen when Margot was trying to send her food back. Um, I was like, oh, what's going to happen? What's the chef going to do? You know, is Were it going to be obvious? For her? I was kind of nervous every time she would yeah. try to do something against like the social norms. Yeah, right. I mean, I wasn't like outsider, you know? and like pushing her hand away or whatever. But I was like, yeah. for some reason, even after it was clear that things had gone to hell and were going to yeah. be bad, I was still like, don't you know? Be careful. Be nice. No, that's not how things are done. Yeah, yeah. You know, like yeah, I was great. scared on her behalf the whole time. You know, right? <laughs> what's going to do to her? What's you know? But I was like, okay, she's a main actress. She's she's going to stick it to the end, I think. Um, another nice touch was the angel investor outside the window. Yeah. I was like, wow, this guy went all out. This is really meticulously planned. <laughs> um, yeah. It's crazy. And how, um, well, the chef and the chef in that part is like, you know, he's like, you know, you're right. He owns this restaurant. This restaurant is my life. Therefore, he owns me. You know, I thought that was a cool kind of moment within within that thing. Yeah. Harkening back to we talked on it a little bit of the uh, when the suicide on the mess. Mm-hmm. You know, he asked the guy, you know, do you want my life? You know, it's not my talent, not my social standing, not my career, not my rest of my life. Do you want my life? Mm-hmm. It's like you know, no chef, I don't, and neither does Slowick anymore. He doesn't want his life either. Oh. Yeah, right? Huh. I thought that was Yeah, I'm remembering that part now. I Pretty thought chilling. that was very cool. <laughs> I also like the line when they do the, the Bryce's birthday cake or the tech bro gets the birthday cake, you know, it wasn't his birthday. <laughs> the guy's mm-hmm. like, Yeah, it seemed like a funny idea three hours ago. <laughs> <laughs> Before we're all gonna die. I thought that was pretty cute and funny. Yeah. Um trying to think. Wasn't there a moment where um, the chef quotes like MLK Jr.? Yes. And it's just the weirdest thing. <laughs> I meant to look up, because I think that is an actual quote, but I thought it would be funnier and better if it wasn't. If it was MLK fake, yeah. Quote, but I think it was a real MLK quote. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't, um, 
I think it was like the assistant who was like, did he just quote MLK? <laughs> yeah. yeah I giggled out loud in the theater on that one. Um, yeah. I laughed again. I was by myself at the theater. So I was fully, yeah, fully engaged. And again, we talked about it a little bit, but you know, I, I loved putting it up there on the screen, you know, what course it was. It's kind of like, I thought that was just a, again, yeah. a great narrative device. It definitely felt like one of those shows, which was cool for me because I watched those. Yeah. Yeah. David Gelb is the guy who does the chef's table show that who did the, that was the second, who was the second. uh, Yeah. I've only watched a couple episodes of that. So I'll probably watch that next. Watch the Magnus Nielsen one. (laughs) Okay. That is the one where I guess uh, I was looking the writer. He was not at Magnus's restaurant. He was at another restaurant, but it was on an Island. It was in Scandinavia. But it is clearly homaging and influenced by the Magnus Nilsson Chef's Table one. Okay. Um, so I would highly recommend. Cool. I'll do that. That. Sounds fun. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for introducing me to this movie. <laughs> yeah. I was actually kind of surprised when you said, hey, I haven't seen that one. Because when you asked me to be on here, you know, pick something I haven't seen. And I was like, nah, he's seen the menu. And then I shot it was it on my list. I wanted yeah. to. And then I kind of just, just kind of didn't happen. I think it was like yeah. Christmas or something. Mm. Um, let's talk for just a couple minutes and then I'll let you go. Yeah. Uh, about your, what did you originally want to, uh, to recommend or not recommend, but to introduce me to that I had already seen. Uh, yeah. Jordan Peele's Nope, which was the summer blockbuster last year. Um, what science fiction horror. Um, yeah, I love that movie. Um, like I told you, uh, my wife and I saw it three times opening weekend. I was just obsessed. Um, I've been obsessed with UFOs and aliens ever since I could remember. Um, growing up with X-Files, watching it live on TV as a kid with my dad and yeah. mom. and I just love Nope. It's, it's so good. Um, a lot of people don't like it because I think there's a little bit of empty space in between scenes and it could have been shaved a little bit more, um, in editing, but I don't know, just something about it. I love jean jacket as the UFO and how that is camouflage. So kind of like, it kind of bakes it into your idea of what are these saucers that people have seen and this new lore, you know, if you pretend like this is, you know, baked into Americana now, that, hey, what we're seeing is maybe some weird biblical angel-type monster thing that kind of maybe protects Earth or protects different planets. But when it's seen by humans, it masquerades as a saucer for some reason because of popular lore or something. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, or just an animal. Like, these animals have been there. These yeah, space instead alien of alien animals. Yeah, instead of some, you know, metallic just a ship, it's actually, you know, alive and doing stuff. Um, one of the creepiest scenes, or I think the creepiest scene is when, you know, he has a shot inside when after he, um Jean Jacket the UFO sucks up the crowd and they're all inside being digested <sighs> by this and <laughs> you just see that the panic in their face. Terrifying. And, and the what plastic horse above them, and they're just like going through this super claustrophobic, you know, tubing the the intestines of this thing. <laughs> no. And I think you're spiders. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Just creepy. Um, so I think you could really enjoy that movie if, you know, you're really into UFOs and aliens and um, maybe not new age conspiracies that are all political, but, you know, the old school ones where you're talking about aliens and governments and, you know, what's going on. Um, and I love that they had Fry's Electronics as the <laughs> <laughs> as the, the character that set up all the cameras so they can get their spectacle shot. Um, because, you know, I grew up with the Fry's Electronics pretty close to our house, um, which okay. is now out of business. <laughs> yeah, we had a prize in Atlanta. Yeah. yeah. And there's one that was up, um, up freeway five. Um, I think in LA area that actually had a UFO like crashed into the outside of it as like the decor. And I think that's where Jordan Peele got the idea from or, you know, influenced. That? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I had a big old flying saucer in the side of the Fry's Electronics. Um, but yeah, I loved all the performances of that one. I loved how visually stunning it was. I think it's on record as being the first horror film shot with IMAX cameras. Like yeah, ever. it was gorgeous. It was a yeah. beautifully shot film. Yeah, I, I saw it in a couple different formats, but we definitely saw it in IMAX. I love it. Now I have it on Blu-ray. And your wife was down to go three times too? Yeah. Yeah. All right. (laughs) My wife would not have been. (laughs) No. Yeah. Um, she, she's okay with, um, I think horror that's like not too much, you know, too demonic, too creepy, too much blood. This one is a nice, like in the middle, like it's more wondrous and eerie than like straight up, you know, creepy. So she's on board with that kind of stuff. But, I love the pacing of it. You know, talking about yeah, like people didn't like too. the slow. I like because I heard it described as novelistic, and I I thought that mm, was pretty yep. accurate. Because you kind of have these little bit of storylines that you're not really sure where they go. Mm-hmm. Maybe they aren't completely paid off, but like, yeah, just like you can do in a novel. You exactly, can, you can add these layers in. Everything doesn't have to be, you know, strictly just for the story. You got this added other information you can get in. Right. That I that's why I like novels. Whatever. Right. So even from the opening scene felt like a novel, you know, with, um, what's the name? Keith. Oof. I forget the actor's name, but Keith the David, I believe. I think so. Keith David, yeah, I the love father. Yeah. He's awesome. Um, yeah. Even that opening scene of them wondering what the hell is going on in the sky. And then he gets, falls off the horse. And then the x-ray shot of the, the coin being in his head. Right. Like, oof, what's going on here? Um, yeah, yeah I, I'll go rewatch that one too. Shoot. <laughs> it's yeah, it's, I, I enjoyed it. The first time I saw it, I think my expectations were very high. I loved mm. get out. Yeah. I did not like us. No, I liked okay. all of it until the reveal happened because oh, in then the, just in the basement, the, inter- the logic of all the ramifications of if that was actually going on or mm-hmm. to me, they, it just lost the thread. Oh, okay. Um, but I liked everything about it. I liked the atmosphere of it mm-hmm. when the other, I don't, I forgot if they're referred to as something like if there's a name given to but when the other folks, yeah, when they dart off, you know, and that's <laughs> kind of scene like that was legitimately, you know, jump out of your seat for me. Yeah. Uh, scary. Stuff. Uh, so I think my expectations were really, really high. And, okay. And then I was just kind of uh, a little let down, but again, I think that's a me problem. You know, mm. watching it a second time, I 
I really didn't feel that except for just towards the very end when the, you know, the animal creature, monster, alien, whatever, uh, kind of transforms a little bit in different shapes and things like that. But again, like, what am I judging on? Like, what is, yeah. Are alien <laughs> animal monsters supposed to act a certain way and do a certain thing? Right. I, do I know that? You know, <laughs> clearly, right. Right. Um, so I'm really glad you, uh, I'm glad we didn't cover that one because I had already seen it, but I yeah. enjoyed watching it a second time, you know, in preparation mm. for this. Yeah. I love that movie so much. Um, yeah. I love even the, the chimp parts, very creepy in its own way and how devastating yeah, that must've been. If you were, a, you know, pre prepubescent kid watching that happen and you're a child actor and that's just that with you fist bump when he's under the table. Yeah. <laughs> and you just and the the CGI was so good, like you just you it was. get a sense of how yeah because those animals are just so ridiculously strong mm-hmm. and fast and smart and yeah yeah and surviving that and then having your co star being all you know oh, that was messed up like that when we see her in the audience yeah she's, she's just got looking the veil up. on but the wind blows up and then she gets yeah. to die like that that's yeah terrible well jeep joined her. her so i guess they both and ended up that way together anyway in the end <laughs> yeah um but yeah i remember the first time since we saw it three in the same weekend the first one i didn't pick up on the horses i was like what's going on with the horses you know he's changing the subject the whole time he's just preparing for that main event and practicing by <laughs> sacrificing these horses um yeah <laughs> pretty sad Really, yeah, I but, didn't really fully get that, do you? Yeah, but I, I did like the themes of you know speculation, um, speculation, no, um, spectacle and exploitation, and you know what we do for that money shot, what we do for um, attention, um, what we pay attention to, and, and what we use animals for, and yeah, how we use them, exploiting animals. Um, exploiting trauma. Um, yeah. <laughs> like he has that little private, uh, tour thing that he can, you know, charge people for, yeah, um, right. which is just a traumatic event. He's making money off of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that was another one that used, uh, the titles, mid titles throughout the movie to, as a framing mm-hmm. device, though I didn't think, it didn't it seem as effective as what they did in the menu because you know, no. they would have a horse's name, mm-hmm. you know, would pop up as a section and then yeah. part of the story. For some reason, it didn't fully. Yeah, it wasn't I'm not as, sure that uh, added anything for me. <laughs> yeah, it didn't have cohesion. <laughs> Utter lack of cohesion. <laughs> Utter lack of cohesion. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Shane, uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for introducing me to the menu and for being a part of my origin story with that movie. Yeah. Uh, How can people find you if they want to uh, keep up with you and what you're doing? Because you've got a lot going on. True. Um, Shanehawk.com is probably the easiest. It has everything else on there. Um, We'll see how long I stay on Twitter. Um, Seems like it the death knell is wrong um, going downhill there. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, shanehawk.com pretty much. Yeah. All right, cool. Is there anything else you'd like to say about your work, the movies we've talked about or anything else? Um, no, I'm just really in the mood because we haven't had, 
you know, cause we're so busy between, um, you know, teaching. And then I'm also in an induction program, which is like projects and homework and busy work on top of teaching and planning. Um, oh, wow. yeah. So I have another year of it. I'm almost done with this first year. Um, and then the whole book thing, uh, we haven't really had great time to sit down as husband and wife and enjoy a movie in months, you know? It's been maybe one episode of something and then, okay, off to work again. <laughs> right. So I want to go watch a movie now. <laughs> that sounds like a plan and a good idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shane, thanks for being on the podcast. Uh, yeah, of course. meeting you in Montana. Enjoyed this conversation and I hope I get to talk to you again soon. Yeah, let's uh, meet up sometime. That sounds good. <laughs> thanks for listening, everyone. Big thanks to Shane Hawk for his time and insight and for introducing me to the menu. Please check out his short story collection, Anoka, and the forthcoming indigenous dark fiction anthology, Never Whistle at Night. Next month on the Origin Story Podcast. Hello, Michael. This is Gladys Cardiff, poet and teacher, and I've got a detective novel called Chanu. I'd like to share it with you. It's written by acclaimed Abenaki storyteller Joseph Bruchak, and I think you'll like it or at least I do.